My name is Shannon Nordgren, and the scripture reading this morning is 1 Samuel 22. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him, and he became commander over them. And there was with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king of Moab, and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hereth. Now Saul heard that David was discovered and the men who were with him. Saul was sitting at Gebeah under, his, under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand. And all his servants were standing about him. And Saul said to his servants who stood with him, Hear now, people of Benjamin, will the son of Jesse give every one of you fields and vineyards? Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that all of you have conspired against me? No one discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse. None of you is sorry for me or discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in wait as, as at this day. Then answered Doeg the Edomite who stood by the servants of Saul. I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahitab, and he inquired of the Lord for him and gave him provisions and gave him the sword of Goliath, the Philistine. Then the king sent to summon Ahimelech, the priest, the son of Ahitab, and all his father's house, the priests who were at Nob, and all of them came to the king. And Saul said, Hear now, son of Ahitab. And he answered, here I am, my Lord. And Saul said to him, Why have you conspired against me, you and the son of Jesse, in that you have given him bread and a sword, and have inquired of God for him, so that he has risen against me to lie in wait as at this day? Then Ahimelech answered the king, And who among all your servants is so faithful as David, who is the king's son-in-law and captain over your bodyguard and honored in your house? Is today the first time that I have inquired of God for him? No, let not the king impute anything to his servant or to all the house of my father, for your servant has known nothing of all this, much or little. And the king said, You shall surely die, Ahimelech, you and all your father's house. And the king said to the guard who stood about him, Turn and kill the priests of the Lord, because their hand also is with David. And they knew that he fled and did not disclose it to me. But the servants of the king would not put their hand to strike the priests of the Lord. Then the king said to Doeg, you turn and strike the priests. And Doeg the Edomite turned and struck down the priests. And he killed on that day 85 persons who wore the linen ephod. And Nob, the city of the priests, he took to the sword, both man and woman, child and infant, ox, donkey, and sheep, he put to the sword. But one of the sons of Ahimelech, the son of Ahitub, named Abiathar, 
escaped and fled after David. And Abiathar told David that Saul had killed the priests of the Lord. And David said to Abiathar, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I have occasioned the death of all the persons of your father's house. Stay with me, do not be afraid, for he who seeks my life seeks your life. With me you shall be in safekeeping. It is true, and Scripture tells us this, but I think our own life experience can, that God's Word is a gracious ministry to His people and to the world. That's why we take it seriously and week after week read the full text, like all of 1 Samuel 22 that Shannon just read for us, and why we work through God's Word. It doesn't mean we don't pause and address a topic or an issue, but in general, we want to hear what the Lord has written for us. And not every passage directly speaks to our moment, but it should be said that every passage shows us who God is, or who we are, or just simply how God works. It might not be directly applicable to a particular moment or issue you're facing now, but it generally builds up the scaffolding of truth that you live in. It's a house in which you live, where you know who God is, and you know how God works, and you know who you are, and you know what he's asked of you to do and how he supports you. Even, even like I shared this morning when I talked about the death of Mike Butts and I spoke of Christ as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. That's scaffolding for us to know that as we're in the middle of God's creation and new creations. We long for the renewal of all things, that we believe Jesus is not just the Alpha, He's the Omega. That He's not just the beginning, but He's also the end. And that gives us a confidence, a hope, even a comfort in the midst of loss and mourning. So we want to come to each biblical passage with that kind of anticipation. And we want to hear everything God has to say and look to see how God speaks to us. So we come to 1 Samuel 22. We hadn't been in 1 Samuel for a little bit. And this is this scene, one of the many scenes in this section of 1 Samuel where David is on the run and Saul's wrath and anger and jealousy is getting more extreme. I mean, if you were paying attention as Shannon read, I mean, he, is, he won't even speak David's name. He didn't even speak his own son's name. He's accusing his own son. The priest is trying to say, uh, is he not honored in your house? Oh, by the way, is he not the husband of your daughter, your son-in-law? Like, I, there's no evidence that he knew of anything or that he did anything that was wrong. David, the future king, is on the run from Saul, the current king, and in this text, we see several aspects of life under God's kingship. Because if anything, and we've talked about this before, if 1 Samuel is wanting to depict anything, it's not just the king that currently is, Saul, or even the king that will be, David. This book is trying to show that God is ultimately the king. That Christ exemplifies that most clearly for us. So there's several things that I want to show you in the text today, different glimpses of God's character and how he works and what he's doing 
that's relevant for us to see and know that arguably is why God wanted us to have this text and to read it and study it this year and this week. But before we do, let me pray for us and ask God to minister to us through his word. Father, we thank you that we can come and know that this word, not anything any of us would, would have written or could say, or that no other book or communication bears the authority and the certainty and the kind of instruction that we, your children, need. And Father, we cling to it like food, like drink, for we are hungry in our broken world and we need your sustenance. We are thirsty. We need your satisfaction. So help us again this week in this text to see how you graciously minister to your people through this text. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what's interesting is the text doesn't spend a lot of time really letting you know how David is dealing with this chase from Saul. I mean, that's kind of what we would probably know. Like, is he, I mean, is he sleeping at night? Is he eating well? What is his like, psychological condition? Instead, it shows that unlike Saul, David is reflecting the true character of a king. And you even get an image through David, as we've seen before, of the kind of care that Christ gives to his people. The text reveals how the fleeing David became a draw for many people in need. That's kind of an interesting thing at the beginning of the text. David departed and escaped to a cave, and when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. Now maybe that's because they actually felt like they could be slaughtered. So arguably the end of verse 1 is letting us know that David's entire family is at risk and they know it. And proof, if anything, is in this very text. When the priest challenges Saul, when the priest is confronted by Saul, Saul doesn't just kill that one priest. He kills all the priests. And then literally the text said, they slaughter a city. And it mentions graphically so, not just animals, but women and children. Infants is the word in there. Like that is graphic. You think David's family, he thinks they're going to get, well, it doesn't involve me, David's father would say. It just deals with him. Or his brothers feel like they're safe? No. So they flee to David. Feel the intensity of that. But notice what verse 2 says. All the distressed, all those in debt, even those who are mourning run to David. Why? He's not, he's, he's not in a position of strength. He's not sitting in his palace with all his servants. Here's this man who's on the run, and all those who are broken run to him. Verse 2, and everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was, the ESV says, bitter in soul. You ever been bitter in soul? They gathered to him. And even in his own moment of crisis, David, unlike Saul, acts like a king by serving his family and the people who have come under his service. In fact, that, that end of verse 2 
says, and he became commander over them. That's, that, that's king language. He was a leader. He cared for them. He, he didn't say, well, what do you, I got my own problems, people. He didn't say that. He cared for them. And it even says about 400 men, which is probably the Bible's way of talking about family units. So about 400 family units. I mean, that's a lot of people. Well over 1,000 people are there he is with this future king, and he cares for them. As you see in the verses to follow. He led them, and then in verse 3, he found provision for them. Why is God showing us these actions? I think two things are worthy to note. One is, and we've already seen this in the text, David serves as a type of Christ in how he serves his people. Jesus, took, Jesus looks after his family, the distressed, those in debt, and those bitter in soul. That's how Jesus works. And he does that not only now sitting at the right hand of God, but he did that during his earthly ministry. He knelt down and spoke to children or lifted them in his arms. He went to the sick and prayed over them and spoke to them on their bedsides. He dealt with those who were wounded or hurt. He confronted injustice and protected those who were in need. He was, he was a pastor, the perfect pastor. Peter says the chief shepherd, who even though he's dealing with our own sinful condition and living the perfect life that the first Adam and the rest of the sons of Adam and Eve have failed to do, even though he had his own burden, his own assignment from the Father, even though literally he was sweating in blood and begging his disciples to pray for him, which they could not do, he constantly cared for people. The text is wanting us to see how David is imaging Christ and pushes us to see how Jesus fulfills this very role for us. Remember the Apostle Peter's words in 1 Peter 5? Humble yourselves, therefore. He's writing to you and me, the church. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. Listen to, listen to these words that the Apostle Peter says, who was ministered to by Jesus Christ, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. How true is that? And even in 1 Samuel 22, God wants us to see not only one man doing that for his family and those in the world, but that's exactly what Christ does. This scene by the way, of the downtrodden coming and being cared for by David, the type of Christ, looks, looks an awful lot like the gathering church. I, I love that the word gathering, the gather to him is there, there in the middle of verse 2. All, everyone who was in distress, who was in debt, who was bitter and so gathered to him. Because if you were to be really rigid with the Greek word for church, it literally just means the gathering. Those called out, that God says, come in, like a, like a parent on the porch calling all the children in their various places, one on a bike in the driveway and one on the swings in the side yard and one mowing, which they should have done the day before, whatever it may have been, right? 
It's like dinner time. And what do you see? Just this gathering of the family coming together. There's that image in 1 Samuel. And that is the image of the Bible. Except what's beautiful in the Bible, this gathering is from all the continents and all the nations and all the people where Christ, the chief shepherd, calls and says, it's time for the great feast. And all gather. And guess who comes? Kings and peasants alike. Men and women, the rich and the poor of all the colors and all the languages and all the nations. And guess what? They're all broken. They're all broken. They're all downtrodden. They're all distressed. They're all bitter in soul. And here's the chief shepherd waiting to embrace them in his arms and offer a share of his life. What a beautiful image. And that's what we do every Sunday. We gather people coming to a local church like ours to be cared for by Jesus and to love one another in the process. That's what it looks like. The Apostle Paul depicts this when he said to the church in Corinth, which was divided between various philosophies of who's your discipler? Who, who do you follow? Who's your favorite pastor theologian? And Paul says this to the Corinthians, for consider your calling, brothers and sisters, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Most of you were plain old normal. Broken. Distressed. Bitter in soul. And then Christ called. He says, it's time for the great feast. And he calls you by name and you come. When Christ gathered you, you were among the distressed. You were among those in debt. You were the one broken in spirit. What a beautiful image. Not just of David with all these families, but of Christ and our family, the church. Now what's interesting is, and here's the thing, unlike Christ who knows all and sees all, David is in many ways like one of us, right? He, he went to Moab and he asked the king of Moab for, the, for his family to be cared for, and then he says something that we would have almost missed at the end of verse 3. I, I don't want you to miss this because these are, this is a great example of the Bible showing us how we live in Christ, how we walk by faith. That little statement, the last phrase, at the end of verse 3, he's asking the king of Moab to care for these people till I know what God will do for me. Did you catch that statement? David does not know exactly what God is going to do. He doesn't know when God is going to do it, and he doesn't know how it's going to be done. But there was one thing he knew. Who would do it? Notice his statement says that. I don't know what God will do for me. I don't know when. I don't know what. I don't even know how, but I know who. Man, don't miss that, Christians. The Bible is teaching us how we have that same scenario. How many of us today don't know the how, don't know the when, don't know the what, maybe even this. Maybe you don't even know the why. Can you imagine Dana Butts waking up this morning, our sister, having some why questions? 
Can you imagine her having some what questions? What do we do now? And she must, like David and like you and me, put your body weight in the who question. You know the who. David models the posture of the Christian. The contrite spirit of a saint who seeks the will of God and trusts the allotted provisions. The Lord will guide. He will lead. And ultimately, in verses 4 and 5, when the Lord gives David instructions, guess what he does? He obeys. Christians, are you humbly and submissively trusting in the Lord for what you need? Because let me be honest with you, if if David were here, he would have said, "I, I had no idea what, I had no idea when, and I had no idea how, but all I knew is that there was a who, who was ranked higher than I was, in whom I had to trust. Brothers and sisters, all of a sudden, 1 Samuel 22 and this very day coalesce, combine, and the text cries out to you, are you trusting in the who? Or are you trying to bank on the how? Or the what? Or the when? It's not easy, especially when serious needs arise. But remember this, no one knows more what you need No one knows more when you need it. And no one knows more how you need it than your loving and gracious Heavenly Father. Trust Him. Wait for Him. A third thing we can see in this text, and this is really verses 6-16 through flesh this out, and I summarize it this way. Saul exemplifies evil and the brokenness of a world not aligned to God. It is grotesque. I've mentioned already some of that. The actions of Saul are shocking. He literally struck down 85 priests in a city. Verse 19 says, he put the sword both women and men, child and infant, and animals. He slaughtered. He was acting like a judge, and he's not the judge. The actions of Saul are shocking and intend to show us how sin, like cancer, has ravaged the soul of Saul. Notice even if you go jump back to verse 6, how the text, when he's first introduced, pictures him sitting under a tree holding a spear. Like he's looking like he's ready for a fight. He's waiting to strike. In verses 7 to 8, he tries to rationalize his wicked desires and convince the people to think the same. He gathers around him evil people like Doeg, Remember the soldiers? They wouldn't respond. His own guard would not do what the king asked. You just don't do that. This isn't like you go to your boss and say, hey, you need you to work overtime. Hey, my contract says, no, no, no. In those days, when the king says something, you do it. But the, but the servants knew that was horrific. 
So he had his hitman Doeg fulfill his sinful bidding. Such evil is important for God to show us. You need to see it. And although there is much that can be described as God's common grace, there's a lot of good in this world. There are good officials. There is good governors or presidents. There, is, there are good senators and congressmen. There are good mayors and police officers and firefighters and nurses and doctors and scientists. And There's a lot of good in common grace, and we want to recognize God's common grace. The world is in great need of the healing work of the Creator and Savior. And we can even maybe say it this way. If God designed the world good, which means there's a lot of common grace that is still there, because of the fall, because of sin, there's now a common curse. And that common curse needs to be seen and known. Just as Christians are right to appreciate God's blessing, common grace, they must also live with an awareness of the ongoing reality of God's curses because of humanity's rebellion and sin. When, when uh, about 18 years ago, in fact, yeah, we were, it was in May or June, 18 years ago this year, because my oldest was just a wee little boy. And we carried him through as we, my wife and I, and a few others visited Auschwitz. And we went to this one spot that was called the Killing Wall. And if you've ever been to Auschwitz, you maybe have seen it. It's this little corridor between buildings that they would take out their prisoners and they would destroy them, shoot them. The wall, when the soldiers broke in and other people in the community came, initially after Auschwitz was taken down and the Germans there were defeated, the wall was destroyed. People with their own fists knocked down that wall because they were so angry. And the rubble was sitting there on the ground. As the tour guide explained to us, though, shortly thereafter, it was put back up. They rebuilt the wall because the people believed that we must never forget what happened here. So if you stand in front of that wall, which they will not let you touch, and in fact, as you walk into this corridor, you are to walk in quiet, and you will hear the whimpers of people crying because it's a place of death, but that wall is put back up, and what you see in that wall, now patched together back in place, is thousands and thousands of holes of bullets that were first used to pierce men and women standing on that spot. It was put back together for remembrance so that we would never forget. But we do that in our own culture. 9-11, never forget. The Alamo, remember the Alamo. We remember things. Auschwitz is a memorial to the curse and brokenness of our world that should never be forgotten. God's Word stands as its own testament of the cancer of sin and the brokenness when God's own priests were slaughtered and a village was destroyed. And just as much as we need to remember God's common grace, we also need to be aware of the common curse of sin. 
Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. That's where Advent, which we just finished celebrating, is not just about his first coming. It's also about his second. Come, Lord Jesus. Last thing we can see, and this is, I think, where the text wants us to reflect upon as well. There is no biblical clause. If you're thinking the Bible is a contract, hey, here's what I'm guaranteed. Here are the benefits. Here's the package of Christianity. Let me add this little note. There is no biblical clause that exempts the people of God from persecution and suffering. The murder of 85 priests of God should instruct Christians that there is no exemption from God's people facing the same thing. Ahimelech was right in what he said to King Saul. And yet he was wrongfully murdered by Doeg. The evil and sin in this world means that even Christians, maybe especially Christians, will suffer and die as they live in and among this kind of brokenness. Love the fact, the truth, I already mentioned, how the servants of King Saul disobeyed him and would not enact his sinful hate of the priests. And brothers and sisters, sometimes Christians must decide to do the same thing. And we need wisdom to know. When must we say no? The Lord would not approve of this. So just as the Bible elsewhere says that the rain falls on the crops of the good and evil, common grace, so this text teaches us that the effects of sin will fall upon the good and the evil, common curse. And as Scripture teaches us, let us not be surprised when the sinful curse of our world falls upon us, evil do- caused by evildoers, broken systems, relational dysfunctions, even just natural, so-called natural things like disease. Rather, let us place our trust and hope in God. If I could use David's phrase at the end of that, Let us place our trust and hope in God until we know what God will do for us. Let us all, the distressed, the indebted, and the downtrodden, seek and cling to Christ. The words of David to the lone survivor of that village at the end of our text, verse 23 sound a whole lot like Christ's words for us. Think of these as Christ's words. Stay with me. Do not be afraid. With me, you shall be in safekeeping. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the grace of Jesus Christ. And even as we now, as Your church reflect on Your Word and the several things that were spoken. Let us be trusting in the who, even if we don't know how or when or what or why. Help us to trust in the who. and To be men and women who see ourselves as the gathering of the distressed and the downtrodden and the brokenhearted who find safekeeping in Christ. How blessed are we, even in the midst of our suffering, 
and our brokenness. Because we know that Jesus is not merely the Alpha, He's the Omega. He's not just the first, He's the last. He's not just the beginning, He's the end. And in Him, we have life. Father, help us as we leave this place to trust in that truth and receive this closing song as a reflection of our own hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.